Well, good morning, church. Good morning, if you're watching online. We got a packed house. That's good stuff. Uh, you came back, right? Because <laughs> last week, last week, that was some hard teaching. Some of y'all weren't so happy with me after last week. And it's even harder to live. It's hard submitting to God's authority. And I think for some of us, it's even harder to submit to governing authorities. And that's what we looked at last week. I had one parent come to me, and this is what they said to me this week. Perhaps our kids struggle with authority these days because we as parents don't want to submit to anyone but ourselves. Maybe they're acting just like me. I thought, ooh, you know, <laughs> it was a kid, ooh. And I thought, man, that's tough. And so we wrestled with the truth that I submit to governing authorities as an act of reverence and, and worship to Christ. You know, last week we looked at the first of the four traps that these religious leaders have concocted. The Pharisees and the Herodians last week, they teamed up together to try to back Jesus into a corner in hopes that he would incriminate himself. In the ambush this week, though, we're going to see the third group that we talked about, the Sadducees, and they're going to try and do the exact same thing. And as I reflect on this story this week, it got me thinking, anyone in here do anything really dumb when you were younger? <laughs> me neither. You know, me, me neither. Um, but when I was younger, we lived next door to a family that had a Doberman Pinscher. And I loved dogs, and I still do. I love dogs. And on this particular day, I decided, you know what? I need to put on my cowboy hat and my cowboy holster and get my cowboy guns. And I thought it would be a good idea to go out there and ride that Doberman like a horse. <laughs> so that's what I did. I got all my gear on. I walked up to that Doberman. I even noticed that that Doberman had a sore foot and it was bandaged. But, you know, that didn't stop me. I'm a cowboy. I'm ready for action. And I got on that thing and I let out a good old-fashioned, yeah, right? That's what I did. And that dog shook me off of him so fast. And when I fell, I fell directly on his sore foot. And that dog came at my face to bite me. And I rolled over. And now, 13 stitches later in the back of my head, if you look back there, that's from that dog. I have a scar down the back of my head. And it reminded me of the idea that against all logical and all sound wisdom, I was utterly convinced in that moment that was a good idea. I was convinced that that was right. I was convinced that what I was doing was pretty smart and it made sense that I was going to be the exception to the rule. That, that I was going to be this exception and that my belief system somehow superseded all human logic out there. Well, the story we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 22 is very, very similar. There's a group of people that are, come, that are going to come against Jesus against all sound wisdom, all sound logic, they're going to present a case to Jesus that they think is rock solid. They're going to come at Jesus with a case that they think is airtight in every way. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. 
And if you remember last week, the Pharisees went around the corner and they concocted a scheme. They hatched a plan. In fact, your Bible said they laid plans to trap him in his words. The Pharisees tried to trap him and they failed. The Herodians, they tried to trap him and they failed. And now the Sadducees are up. Look at verse 23. This is what it says. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So after last week's moment with the Herodians and Pharisees, this is moments later. And I have to say that I think the Sadducees here would be giddy with excitement. Why? Because the Pharisees had failed. Why are they excited? Because the Herodians had failed. And these three groups, remember, they can't agree on anything, especially religious issues. And now here's their shot to do it better for them to show up those guys. And right here at the beginning, you need to picture the scene. I need you to remember about the Temple Mount. We've talked about this. It is 36 acres huge. 24 football fields, huge. The Temple Mount could support tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So there are crowds everywhere listening to and observing all of these dialogues that are happening. And for this ambush, up walks the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees came into existence during the intertestamental period. So they came into existence after the book of Malachi, but before the book of Matthew. They started during that 400-year gap between the Testaments, and they have roots in the Old Testament priesthood. In fact, in Jesus' day, most every priest was a Sadducee. And the Sadducees, they were, they were conservative in their belief system. They were wealthy. They were the aristocrats. They had positions of influence. They were very, very political in nature. I would liken them maybe to Congress today, if you will. They certainly weren't the largest group of people in terms of the general population, but the sway that they had, the political influence that they could bring to the table uh, was very, very significant. They were small in number, but they were great in influence. They have sort of played both sides of the fence. They needed to make sure Rome was happy so they could keep their positions of power and influence and authority. But they also had to make sure the Jewish people were happy in order to keep their positions of power and authority and influence. Because they have to rule over the Jews, but they have to do it with the support of the Romans. And there's two significant things that you need to know about what the Sadducees believe. First, they believed in nothing miraculous. No angels, no miracles, no afterlife. And most importantly, if you are a Sadducee, you did not believe in the resurrection. So when I say the word resurrection, we tend to think the resurrection of Christ. Remember, that hasn't happened yet. So really what they're talking about is the afterlife. Your soul died with your body is what they believe. In contrast, the Pharisees believed all those things and the Sadducees did not. And so these two groups would debate endlessly about these topics. Second, the Sadducees actually had an incredibly high view of Scripture. They knew it. They memorized it. But not all of the Old Testament, only the first five books, only the Torah, 
Only the book of Moses held authority in their lives. They had a high view of Scripture, but a very, very narrow view of what Scripture actually contained. And so they didn't believe in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. They dismissed the Psalms, all the Proverbs, um, the prophets. They weren't going to listen to Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Malachi, none of them. None of those other 34 books held any weight with them. Only the Torah, the first five books. And they were very strict in their interpretation of those five books. And so as a, a result of all this, you can imagine these guys were constantly at odds with the Pharisees because of this belief system. And I would argue that the, the Sadducees probably had the most to lose as Jesus rolls onto the scene. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, they're about to lose all power, all authority, all influence. If Jesus continues down that road, they're in trouble. So the Sadducees very much wanted to prove that this guy wasn't the Messiah and that he was simply mistaken in his belief system. So now here in 24, the Sadducees are seeking to trap him, possibly even ridicule him, but most definitely trying to discount his silly belief of the resurrection. Look at verse 24. It says, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. So this begins with a very simple statement. And what they're speaking about is something called the Leverite marriage vow or the Leverite marriage law that's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 25. They're quoting scripture at Jesus. Never a funny thing to do, right? If you quote scripture at Jesus, probably not going to go well, but whatever. Um, so this is one of the books that they sort of held up as authoritative. And it simply said this, if you're a man and you had a wife and you died before you provided her a male offspring and there was no one to carry on the family name, it was in the requirement of the nearest next of kin, your brother, to then marry the widow and provide a male offspring for your deceased brother. Yeah, that'll make you look at your family differently, won't it? <laughs> Ew, right? That's what we start to say. I'm, <laughs> but that's, that's what it, we can talk about why that is later. But that's the idea. And part of it was so that the family name would continue. Part of that is so that property could be maintained and it would safely stay within the family. It was also a way for the widow to be cared for and the widow to be protected in that society. It's similar to the story of Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, if you remember that story. Similar idea. So this issue is what they bring now to Jesus. And remember, they're arguing from the book of Deuteronomy, one of the five books they believed and they knew backwards and forwards. They'd memorized it. So they, in their own mind's eye, they're on solid ground, very solid ground. And so they come to Jesus with this issue and they're coming to him on the offensive. They're trying to trap him. And so in verse 25, they begin to explain a hypothetical situation based off of verse 24. Verse 25 says, now, there were seven brothers among us. You know where this is going. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. 
So every one of the brothers die before they're able to provide a male offspring. And finally, she dies. So at a surface level reading, this lady has incredibly bad luck, right? <laughs> Just from a surface level reading, that's what it seems like. But again, this is hypothetical to the Sadducees because they're, they're after something deeper. And the next verse has the question. Verse 28 says, now then, at the resurrection... Whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Whose wife is she? She married them all. So if this uh, silly resurrection thing is true, whose wife will she be when she gets there? Now, as silly as that may sound to us, that's a very real question. I would say even today for some of you. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you've remarried. And when you think about heaven, you're like, oh boy, <laughs> right? Which person am I going to be married to, my first spouse or my second spouse? For those of you who are widowers, this is a very real concept. And so these guys drop this question in verse 28. Again, they're trying to trap Jesus. And what they're saying here, they're not concerned about marriage. They're not concerned about family name property staying within the family. They're not worried about protection for the widower or care for the widower at all. We want to know, we, we want you to know that the idea of the resurrection is ridiculous. And if life after death is really true, then this scenario would one day be real. In, in their mind's eye, that couldn't be. You can't both obey the law found in Deuteronomy and have this crazy type of situation at the resurrection. Now again, I need you to remember resurrection, not talking about Jesus. That's coming in a couple of weeks. Jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet. So they talk about resurrection, they're simply thinking of life after death. So is there indeed life after death? And so their question is a trap and puts Jesus in a bit of a pickle when you first look at it. Because if Jesus says, hey, she's not married to any of these men. She's not married to any of them. Then Jesus basically said, the, resurrect, the resurrection simply doesn't exist, and you just die, and it's over. And so now he sided with the Sadducees, meaning the Pharisees are mad, and they're going to plot to kill him. But the other problem is if Jesus answers, well, the woman she's married to husband number, you know, door number four, you know, or door number seven, if he just arbitrarily assigns someone to this woman, we've got another problem. Jesus would affirm a resurrection, but now the pickle would be that Jesus is going to have to arbitrarily decide which one of these husbands is married to this woman. So the Sadducees would want to kill him for blasphemous beliefs. And not only that, the Pharisees would be mad because he's seemingly condoning adultery in a sinful marriage situation in heaven. But what these guys didn't learn from last week is they're picking a fight with the wrong guy. They're picking a fight with the wrong guy. Look at verse 29. It says, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus says, you are mistaken. The literal translation is, you are deceiving yourselves. You are deceiving yourselves about the scriptures. And really those are fighting words, especially for these guys, because they thought they clearly knew the scriptures. Oh, I do know the scriptures, they thought. 
That would be really insulting and would be a, a stinging rebuke. Jesus is saying, you think you hold all the rights to logic and all the lights to wisdom, but you don't understand the very scriptures that you claim to believe. You may have read them, but they haven't penetrated your heart. And they've certainly not affected your actions. You might have knowledge, but you don't have wisdom. Know the difference? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing it not to put it in a fruit salad. <laughs> really easy. What Jesus is saying in this moment is, these guys, you guys don't have knowledge. Y'all don't have wisdom, and their proper reading of the Scripture should have led them to this idea of wisdom, but it simply didn't. They were reading God's Word, and they were memorizing God's Word to check a box. We never do that, but apparently they did. And so Jesus goes on to say, you don't know the power of God either. You have God in this little box and anything outside of your little box, you simply can't comprehend. So in verse 30, Jesus is going to answer their question. Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus not only clearly affirms the resurrection, he speaks about something else. Now, some people read this and go, oh, after we die, we're going to be angels. No, that's just something crazy people say at funerals. That's completely unbiblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that we're going to be an angel. It says here, Jesus says, we're going to be like an angel. And so what does that actually mean? Because Jesus is not speaking about physical structure or relational position. That's not what he's talking about at all. Nowhere in the scripture does it talk about us being an angel. Jesus says we'll be like angels. What Jesus is saying here is like angels, we will be single in heaven. We won't marry in heaven and we won't be married to our present spouse in heaven. And as you hear that truth, that could be really hard to swallow that we won't be married in heaven. In fact, I would encourage you to look at your spouse right now and if you have one and, and if you see a a small tear right now <laughs> coming out of their eye, then this is really hitting them and that you're not going to be married to you in heaven. And, and, that, and that's a good thing. But if you look at them right now and they're smiling a little bit like that right now, you might need to call the church office for some counseling, right? You probably should sleep tonight one eye open. Don't talk about insurance right now. Not a good thing. But seriously, what Jesus is saying here is, you're going to be like the angels. You're going to be single, like the angels, when you get there. And as heartbreaking as that may be, it does not mean that a husband and wife will not have a close relationship. It just means that they won't be married. Why? Because most likely, there will be no need for marriage in heaven. Because what, why would we be married in heaven? When God established marriage, he saw that Adam was in need of a companion. Several things he was need, need a companion. A companion. There was human loneliness, the need for a helper. In heaven, there's no need for a helper. There's no loneliness. There's no need for procreation. 
Intimate human companionship is going to look way different, and so on. Marriage is also a reflection of Jesus Christ and his church, but that changes as well in heaven. All of our needs and all of the purposes of marriage on this earth will be fulfilled in heaven. So it's going to look different. And in verse 31, Jesus again indicates clearly for us and the Sadducees that the resurrection is very true and is very real. It says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? So Jesus says, y'all think you've read the Bible, but you clearly haven't. See, they've read their Bible, especially this section, hundreds of times. He says, and you missed it. And missed what? You missed life after death. And I want you to notice that what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't quote from the other 34 books. Like you don't see him, because several places in the Old Testament clearly speaks to bodily resurrection. He doesn't quote from Isaiah or Daniel or Job or, or some other book that they would have dismissed. Because the Sadducees, they don't believe in those books. So if you're going to argue with them on their ground, you have to meet them where they are. So Jesus is now going to quote from one of their five books. That's verse 32. Jesus says, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He quotes Exodus chapter 3 here a passage that these guys would clearly have memorized because they have the entire first five books completely memorized. That's a lot, isn't it? Like, we have a hard time. I can't memorize scripture. They're doing books at a shot here. So he quotes that, and it's an iconic verse in Jewish history. It's a verse that you know as well. This actually takes place where Moses hears God's voice speaking to him from the burning bush. That's where this is from. And God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. Like, I was the God of of Jacob and Isaac. Oh, no. He says, I am the God. Because if you remember, Abraham had died 545 years prior to Moses. And so the phrase is not, I was. The phrase is, I am, because Abraham is very much alive. He's just changed locations. Jacob, very much alive, just changed location. Isaac, very much alive, simply changed locations. So Jesus is attaching himself to Moses. And what Jesus is saying is, how can God, how can you be a God of a dead person? If they're dead, that doesn't make any sense. The answer is, he's not because Abraham is alive. So the living God is the God of the living So he now takes a verse that they have been so familiar with in the book of Exodus and says, friends, you are sincere in your convictions that there is no resurrection, but you are sincerely wrong. And he proves it from their own scriptures, and their response is what we would expect. Look at verse 33. It says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching." These people, once again, are watching another group of religious leaders trying to trap him in a lose-lose situation and Jesus Houdini's his way out. Maybe you have to take a second and explain that to some people next to you who don't know who Houdini is, but that's what he does. The word for astonished here means they lose their mental composure. You know you want to see that. 
You want to see somebody lose their mental composure. Their brain just sort of melts. In fact, we've seen it before at the end of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. It says the people were astonished. The end of the section of miracles. It says the people were astonished. Could he be the Messiah? Could Jesus really be the guy? And verse 34, which we'll look at next week, says that, that they're silenced. That's a lot. Pastors like to talk. Silenced them. They got nothing else to say. And so the question becomes, why is this text here? What's Jesus' main point? Is it the denial of the resurrection? I certainly think that's part of it. I do. I think that's part of what he's after. But I also think one of the major keys to this text is found in verse 29. It says, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I think that's a challenge to us. Because I would start with, how well do you know the scriptures? Not how well do I know the scriptures, how well do you know the scriptures? See, for some of us, we've yet to get connected regularly to God's word. Like we read it when we have to. We bring our Bibles to church and open them when Kevin says because he nags us every single Sunday. Maybe that's why. We even consider reading the verses in our devotionals as the same thing as reading God's word, and it's not. If all you do is read a devotional, you are reading someone else's quiet time. That's what you're doing. Now, I'm not saying devotionals are wrong. I use them as well. But if that's all you do, you are reading someone else's quiet time rather than you having your own quiet time with God in his word. Because God's word is God's language to us. It's how he speaks to us. And so to know the scriptures mean we dwell in them. It means you sit in them. It means you, you wrestle with God's word. Because I, when I read God's word, I'm like, I don't like that. And let the wrestling begin. And I think about it. And I meditate on it. And I pray them. And this isn't intellectual assent like, you know, I've got the gist of it. Because the truth is, we don't. Because when life hits, when life hits you, our people need us. Our parents need us. Our kids, our friends, our coworkers, our schoolmates, and more. But do we give them earthly advice that sounds good, but that's rooted in nothing of value? And I would say our people need more than that. Our people deserve more than that because if you're not in God's word regularly, there's a very strong reality that your doctrine is in error and probably you have very, very little truth to share. You're quoting stuff that might not even be in the Bible at all. Do you realize that in our church, there's, I said over 250 at the last service, some people came up and corrected me that we think it's closer to 300 people at this church that are reading God's word at least five times a week. That's how you know the scriptures. That's how you move from knowledge to wisdom. 
That's how you move from complacent Christianity to a vibrant relationship that's proactive and on mission because you can't dwell in the Bible long before it starts changing you, like it or not. Because it changes your words. It changes your perspective. It changes your relationships and your generosity and your purpose. It pushes me to stop some things. And it calls me and pushes me to start some things. It pushes me to submit to the Bible and lean in even when I don't want to and I don't like it. It helps me not just say the Bible has authority in my life. I begin to actually live like it does. And not some of it, all of it. And that can be really difficult. It can be humbling. It changes you. I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, how many times, several of you I'm, I'm in groups with, uh, I was read with Travis quite a bit, and, and I read through it, and we've read through it multiple times now. I'm like, was that in there last year? Because I don't, I don't remember seeing that. Like, that, that can't be in there because it's not highlighted. And I sure, certainly would have highlighted that last year. I'm, that's why it's living and active. See, when it's calling me to something greater to be loving and kind. Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Ponder about such things. Dwell on such things. And boy, do I sometimes dwell on situations and relationships and work or whatever that aren't good or honoring and praiseworthy. I'm a master at dwelling on those things. There's a reason why people don't know their Bibles. Because it's convicting. And it's tough and it changes us, and I don't want to change. I'm pretty great the way I am. And your wife goes, no, you're not, you know? And so I'm not sure I like any of that. And I would imagine that you, just like me, struggle with very similar issues where we're willing to put our life in subjection to some of what the Word of God says, but not all of it. And that means we don't know the Word of God. But there's a second thing in here that's irritating and that I didn't like as well. And Jesus says, these men didn't know the power of God. So they keep faith in a box, specifically this issue of the resurrection. Most of us in here would say, I have no problem with the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection. Let me tell you the reality of those who don't believe in the resurrection. When you don't believe in eternity, you don't live for eternity. How are you living? How are you living? Where are you investing? How are you doing there? Because remember, behavior follows belief. Can't say it and then do nothing with it. These men had put all their stake, all their marbles in this world because there's nothing to come. So if there's nothing after this and there's no judgment, then the person who has the most toys wins, right? So the old saying is true. So at your job, your main purpose at your job then is to accrue money. And your main job is to accrue success and to accrue power in all the things that this world gives accolades to because... 
That was their only worldview. They didn't live with an eternal mindset. And man, I'm so guilty of that sometimes. Because the world doesn't applaud what the scriptures applaud. And I don't like that. I don't like that. See, they don't applaud when I put my treasures in heaven. When I live for eternal things. When I begin to sacrifice things of comfort, need, and desires of this world, and to be willing to experience difficulty and hardship for the sake of the gospel. I don't like any of those things, and I find myself on a bad day aligning myself with some of the unspoken theology of the Sadducees. I say things like, my money is mine. I say things like, my time is mine. My stuff is mine. The priorities of this life are my family, my vacations, my job, and my comfort. And while fundamentally those things are not wrong, according to the scriptures, those are not the priorities of God. Because if I want to see the power of God, then I have to have the priorities of God. If I want to see the power of God, then I have to have the priorities of God. If I want to see immeasurably more than ever what I could ask or imagine, then I have to live like my God is immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine. If I want to see the addicted freed, if I want to see the lost found, if I want to see the sick healed and busted marriages restored and more, I need to live with intentionality and expectancy and purpose. I've got to live on mission. But unfortunately, on too many days, I don't want to live that way. I want to live for me and my priorities. And that leads me to seeing the power of Kevin and miss the power of God. And yet, at the end of the day, I might marvel at my own power, but inside I'm yearning for something so much more. I want to see the dead come to life. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees. There is an eternal reality. There is life after death, and the resurrection is supposed to be the greatest hope of the believer. Why? Because this world is not our home. But boy, I am certainly living and building like I'm staying a while. I am. And so as we close, can I just encourage you? While the resurrection of the dead is awesome because it means we're going to see loved ones again, while it's awesome that pain and death and disease of this world is only temporary and there will be a time where I will be freed from all of that and this life is like that long, it's like a vapor, Scripture says, compared to eternity, the true beauty of the passage is that the resurrected life is supposed to start now and last forever. But too many of us are living like this is death's waiting room. And I'm just living however I want to because life really starts when I get there. But Scripture says you're a new creation. It says you're born again. It says you're no longer a slave to sin. Fear no longer has to run our lives. I have been restored. I've been redeemed. I've been repurposed. And I've been given a mission by God to do and say and to see amazing things every day. 
I don't want to have to wait until I die to see immeasurably more. His word says that I can see it and experience it this day, not someday. And it's all because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't given your life to Christ, I would look at you and say, what on earth are you waiting for? What could you possibly be waiting for? I'm not saying it's easier. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you up front, it's harder. And at certain days, it makes no sense to me. And, and I'm living upside down. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm following what God says. But you know what? I get to see the power of God every day. And for some of you who have given your life to him, and you're living Bibleless, prayerless, weak lives, what are you waiting for? Because you know better, right? You're a new creation, right? The Holy Spirit lives in you, right? So your workplace is wide open, and you're missing him. Your school is wide open. Your condo association, your neighborhood, your job, your friends are all wide open. And I would say, just watch. Just watch all that God will do. He will do more. Scripture says immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. You will see dead people come to life.